0: I mean, when you go into a war zone, when it comes to nighttime, you suddenly, that first day, the bizarre thought you have at the end of the first day is, hey, when, when do I sleep? Because nothing really stops in, in, in that kind of zone. um. And you can, hang on, I'm, I'm, I'm here for six months. um. And you learn to sleep like a dog, literally where you are that first night. I slept in my tank with my eyes uh, still looking through the periscope of the tank, just leaning on on that periscope.
1: That is James Blunt in a very poignant and very funny conversation because it's about his life. It's also about his brand new hilarious book, which is called How to Be a Complete and Utter Blunt. And this is How to Wow, brought to you by m and Plank Kitchen. In our house, we cannot get enough of m and Plank Kitchen's no beef burgers. Not to mention their chorizo puppies. But let's leave the chorizo puppies for another day. back to the show James Blunt's book How to Be a Complete and Utter Blunt is the highlights his own Top of the Pops from his tweets and repeats full of expletes ifs that didn't work anyway here I am in conversation with the man himself he was in a Ibiza I wasn't cue the conversation James are you in a Um I certainly am and uh, and it's it's not too bad Right, okay, we need more. This is a podcast. We can talk about it for like an hour. You've never really opened up to me about, about Ibiza. In the mid '90s, wasn't it, you sent your mum out to have a look around for houses for you, something like that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I was just on this kind of extended long uh, tour um, uh, that uh, almost the first 10 years, I just didn't stop touring. And so my mum and dad very kindly came out to Ibiza. They'd never been out there, out here before. Um, and they looked around 20 houses and then uh, and they called me up saying that we found one. It's not Flash or anything. It's just a really nice home. And then, and then they said, but don't believe us. Hey, listen to your mate. And my, I had a friend here called Bruce Parry who did their program called Tribe. Do you remember him on the BBC? So, um, like the, a Bear Grylls type character. No, I do. I do remember. And they handed him the phone and he said, it's, it's, it's a really beautiful little home. Um, and so I bought it without ever seeing it.
1: So why not Ibiza, obviously, but why particularly Ibiza?
0: Um, Well, you know, I don't know what the weather's like as you're looking out of the window right now in London. (laughs) Um, Or what the view is as you're looking out of the window right Uh, now in London. uh, But um, but as I'm looking out, I'm looking across the forest, over the tops of the trees, and I can see um, the sea, the Mediterranean. I can see Ibiza town in the distance. I can see Formentera, the island, um, way on the horizon. Um, And uh, and I do see two clouds as well. Um, and, uh, And so that would probably be a good enough reason. Yeah, but why not somewhere else? I also like nightclubs.
1: Right, I see. Okay. Do you have a previous there? Do you, do you have previous there? Did you go there a lot when yeah, you were younger?
0: Definitely. Like, like you know, like loads of people. Um, I came on holiday here as a child. Um, I'd walk past Pasha nightclub, um, seeing the queues and and you know and hoping one day to be allowed in. And then uh, and then yeah, through my teens and early twenties, I'm um, going to all the clubs here. Pasha being the most famous one. Um, but there are a ton of really uh, amazing uh, day and nightclubs that um that just, yeah, it's just a whole different scene, really. I mean, a nightclub in London can be a couple of hundred people um but here, they're sort of ten thousand people and and more. and um and they and they start at two in the morning. You wouldn't go before two in the morning. The DJ comes on at four, um, and you're kind of pushed out bleary eyed at at seven a m to, off to go and find an after party.
1: And because the thing about Ibiza and the club scene is, Ibiza is a lot bigger than just the, the bit where the clubs are, and so it's it's very beautiful. So, you know, a lot of people have moved out there in the last ten to fifteen years, or from other places. You know, they seem to have congregated there, and more of a sort of middle aged than anything else, because it is a stunning island. Anyhow, can you just sort of paint a picture of that, if you don't mind?
0: Well, I think I'm, uh, I've always tried to scare people off coming here, uh... but I was just telling you it's only about the nightclubs. <laughs> um, and so no, there's nothing else for you to see. Oh, dear. Uh, no, but I'm in the, I'm in the middle of the island, um, and and it's about ten minutes from north to south, from you know the nor- beaches in the north to beaches in the south, um, and yeah, it's, and it's very beautiful. It's a kind of you know full of uh, pine trees. It's called the Potosias because it's full of pine trees. That's its name, and full of you know Borg and, and flowers. If those are your, if that's your thing.
1: Well, uh, the reason I'm asking you this is because my wife has told me to. Well, she said you have to ask him about it, or because she basically wants to to come and live next door to you, or, or you know, at least within a minute a minute's drive. Not particularly because of you, James. I mean, she she does like you a lot, but, but she this is her all over, and she says, you know, why don't more people do? It? I mean, obviously it's going to be within your means, but a lot it is it, it is within a lot of people's means, and they just don't do it, and they've got this dream, and they're waiting for the moment when it's all all right, but. You just went for it, you know, and I'm trying to get into into the psyche of a lot of people thinking it, but somebody else doing it.
0: Yeah. um, you, uh, Your wife sounds like my mother-in-law who's threatening to come and live out here next to us as well. Um, and uh, and so I beg your wife not to. Um, and yeah. You know, I think it's a... I suppose it's a big step, isn't it, to leave where, where you know. If you, you know, been brought up in the in the UK, to come out to a place that's speaking Spanish um, everywhere, and uh, um, and it is an island, and so you know, it, of course, it's beautiful. And it comes with its things, but um, but it's a big step to step away from what what you know, and and this place is very much like a little village in itself, um, and and I suppose during the winter when there aren't the tourists coming, in, it will feel more cut off, um, from the UK, um, and so it's a step away from what you might know.
1: And so, you know, um, to, we're recording this on a Monday in October 2020. Uh, what, what did you do yesterday, for example, on
0: the Sunday in October in Ibiza? I was recovering slightly. I had a, a, a party through, um, uh, through Saturday, which went through to dawn. It was a two-year-old's birthday party, but it seemed to turn into an adult party. I think it was just an excuse.
1: <laughs> and uh, a Sunday recovering. So is that, are you? are you by the pool? Are you going for a walk? Are you down to the beach, a dip in the ocean or what?
0: Yeah, we went down to the beach in the evening, um, which again, no one's around at the moment um, because I mean, normally the season would extend a little further into October. But at the moment, there were maybe 10 people on this uh, beach um, as the sun was going down and there's no one around. Before that, we went into a local village um And there's a little place that actually does a, an english sunday roast um, and oh, uh, that's and, not fair <laughs> um, did a bit of that, and you know otherwise um you know pot around a garden
1: oh dear me well well, good for you we're all very pleased for you this end. Well done to the blunts thanks so much yeah congratulations you're you're winning as far as that's concerned so um <laughs> do you think do you think your sort of lack of um potential uh Sort of uh, national, international, Icelandic, uh, uh islander uh, agrophobia or claustrophobia, claustrophobia could be down to the fact that you were, had led a, quite a peripatetic childhood because your dad in the army.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, I, my first memories were from Cyprus, where we we grew up. I grew up um, in uh, Nicosia, the capital there, um, and my dad was based there as a helicopter pilot with the United Nations. Um, and beyond that, you know, we lived in Hong Kong, um, Germany for two years, uh, as far afield and as ex- exotic as Yorkshire, um, and then back down um, to the south of England too. And so, constantly moving around every two years, having to make new friends every two years, and 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 feel um, yeah very transient as a result. But definitely, really enjoyed. Um, you know, the Mediterranean and an island, probably from my memories of Cyprus.
1: Yeah, so that's so that's all part and parcel of your makeup, isn't it? That's why you're le- you were less fearful of what other people would consider sort of a quantum move, perhaps.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, and yeah, and I suppose it's something I've always felt is that life is short, and you want to just, you know, not wish for another life, but 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 go your own way um and, and i suppose human beings in by their nature feel that they want to go and um herd together in some way for the protection of each other as a group um and and, and i understand that as a thing but i've always been one to say you know if you guys are all going that way I, i'd be more attracted to go in the opposite direction
1: yeah no that is interesting and we'll get on to more about that in a moment or two and so when you were you know i've got lots of quotes i've read a lot about you in the last couple of days because this is going to be a longer interview than we've ever done before. But, you know, it is said that you said when you were a teenager, you know, you, t- so you banged on your mates all the time about the fact you're going to be a musician. That's what you wanted to do. So first of all, where did that yearning come from? Where did music come from into your life? And then how come you didn't become a musician straight away and you went to the army? So just take us through that little journey, please, if you don't mind.
0: I think there are two, uh, two people in play uh, my father and my mother. My father was a, a colonel in the Army, um, uh, in the Army Air Corps, um, and so he introduced me to that as a, as a, as a, just as a career. You know, not that he was pushing it on me at all, just something that he knew of and could introduce me to. And so, obviously, with him travelling around um, to give stability in school, I was sent to a boarding school, when um, the Army subsidises that. Um, and then I went to university, and the Army subsidised that as well. But as a payback, I then had to join the Army um and and pay the the cash back that they had lent me. Um, and that was that was a path then that was just you know introduced and in, in an option. But then uh, you know no no way out once I owed them the money. Um, and on the other scale, other side of the scale, my mother, who loved um music um uh, really from her family too, and and um, taught me how to play the piano. I mean, I didn't really enjoy it to begin with because you know, if i I was taught classically and playing Mozarts, uh, sonata in F-sharp minor is not really that interesting to play to your mates. They're not that um, impressed by it. Um, and so I didn't really enjoy that very much. But then when I got to uh, to school uh, aged uh, 13, 14 years old, there was a guy called Henry O'Brie, um who um, had an electric guitar and he showed me a few, few chords and I immediately uh, was just, yeah, blown away and excited by it. Not only for the the, the excitement of what an electric guitar is, but the expression um, of your, of you, of what you're trying to express inside, your, you know, the emotional expression that comes with music, um, and I realised that, yeah, I, as a young man working out his independence and his, uh, his sense of individuality, that music gave me, uh, um, that, that, you know, that opportunity to write songs and cre- create um, uh, emotional journeys, which I suppose, as a, an English young Englishman at a boarding school, you just don't have that expression. Um with a father who's in the army as well, you know, I I I was emotionally stunted and then music gave me an outlet. Did you feel emotionally stunted? Um, no, I no. I, I was just I think uh, no, I think I was just probably told I was by anyone who came into contact. <laughs> <laughs> you
1: were told what you were, and not <laughs> you're not allowed to feel what you were. It's so, it's so interesting. So, so our little boy, um, Eli, he's eight and he's having piano lessons at the moment, and he sort of likes it, but he, he sort of doesn't. So, what is the tipping point? Because you know, to play, to play the, you know, classical music by the age of 12 or 13, quite proficiently, I would imagine, or at least passably, um, then you would have to practice a bit. H- how do we get our little boy to do that? Because it is this podcast is called How to Wow. So how, how do I get my son to do that, please, James?
0: Well, I think it has to be fun. Um, it's all it really comes down to. And if you're forced to do anything um by a parent or by a teacher then it's not fun but um if if they can excite you into doing it and find the, the aspects of it that you enjoy um and, and and nurture those then it immediately becomes something that they they or i would pursue so how did your folks do that well it didn't really um and uh, and i hated playing the piano for many years as a result of it but i think it gave me a back, you know it gave me a background of music that the moment then someone handed me a guitar, it was something different. um, And and it was my own, rather than something that was forced upon me. um, And it suddenly became something exciting. So I still think my mother did entirely the right thing, gave me uh, music... Uh, uh, pushed me to learn a little bit and that basis was enough to then be excited about it when I found my own thing and I suppose it was the same with my dad trying to force me to sail and I hated it but I loved windsurfing because it was my own thing and <laughs> um, not wanting to do what they were, they were pushing me into That's
1: so funny imagine if they did that on purpose they were just really clever so your mum foisted the regimen you know of, and the gravity and the weight and the burden of classical piano on you knowing that she wanted you to play the guitar and your dad just hankered after you being the best windsurfer in the world so thought would just beat him up with sailing first, because that would be genius,
0: yes, exactly. I think they planned that from from day one. <laughs>
1: <laughs> who would you be listening to when you were ten, twelve, fourteen years old?
0: Um well, my parents didn't play much music at home. We, I suppose they listened We did long car journeys from you know we drove from Germany back to the u k. Um, you know with a with a trailer on the back, such long journeys, and to shut us up in the in the back, us children, um they would put on. They literally had one Beatles greatest hits uh, tape, um, one Beach Boys greatest hits tape, and the Don McLean album. Um, That was the three uh, albums we listened to constantly. And in a drawer, I found the Pink Floyd Wish You Were Here album, which, again, because they weren't listening to it, became my favorite.
1: Interesting though, you know, Beatles greatest hits, blue or red doesn't really matter. Beach Boys pet sounds or greatest hits. Don McLean, that's fine. Uh, and um, and Pink Floyd. I mean, that's that's not terrible, is it? That if you've only got four LPs in the world to to listen to, to 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 give you any sort of founding, you know, f- uh, formation as a, I don't know, to 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 get some sort of musical DNA, you know, the greatest in the world in you in your very being. then not. That's not. A, they're not bad four pillars to begin with, James.
0: Not bad. And so you have to ask, listening to my musical output, where did it all go wrong? <laughs> but I see, I thought the opposite because
1: I can hear the Beatles in your songs and I can hear Don McLean definitely in your songs and I can hear the Beach Boys in your songs. And, but I can't hear any Pink Floyd. I'll give you that one.
0: Yeah, I think you're probably right. Um, but yeah, I think yeah. I mean, who can't then be influenced by those wonderful? Yeah, I'm pretty lucky.
1: No, you. Are. Well, it's not like it's just interesting because because you know I was the same. Beatles' greatest Sits, sixty two to sixty six. I thought that was the name of an album. I didn't realize that that was a greatest. I didn't know what a greatest hits album was. And then it was like sixty six to seventy. You know, um, the yeah. p- Pink Floyd would explain a beater a little bit.
0: Yeah, maybe so. And you know, I mean, it's it's strange because my music, the, the music that I can put out, is a particular t- uh, type. You know, it's it's, it's uh, hopefully music will be played on your radio station or, or pop music in that way. Um, but the music I love and listen to is much more ambient. Be it Pink Floyd. My if you listen to me, if you ask me what my favorite album is, it's KLF Chill Out. Wow. Um, you know, just totally kind of an a- ambient. Um, and weird. And I'm out in Ibiza listening to dance music instead. So, um, so yeah, I, I listen to and I play very different music. So you get the guitar 14-ish, do you think? Exactly that. I got a, um, a fake um, Stratocaster, not, you know, kind of a cheap 100, 100 quid electric guitar.
1: Yeah. A lot of people start off with either a fake Strat or a homemade Strat. So Roger Dodgery made himself a Stratocaster. That was quite impressive. Very, very impressive. And so you went for electric over acoustic just because you thought it was easier? It was a fast track or something or because that's what your heroes played
0: or what? That was exactly my father's question at the time. Um, Why not an acoustic? Um, And well, no, at that stage, I very much uh, wanted to be a rock star. That was the dream. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, so I wanted to play the electric guitar. I wanted to do guitar solos when, you know, (laughs) up to Kings Lynn and bought myself a PV amplifier. Um, and, uh, and the guitar I got from somewhere on the Uxbridge road. Um, and I, and I had dreams of being a rock God.
1: And what happens, what happened immediately? So what's the first, what's the first riff you played? Obviously smoke on the water would have had to feature, I would imagine pretty quickly.
0: Pretty quickly. You know what I, you know, I'm full of cliches, really. I wanted to play, uh, dire straits money for nothing yeah um i thought there's a the hotel california solo mm-hmm. um uh oh I, I had another dire straits moment sultan's a swing see not easy by the way those ones no but great fun and you know and, and at least then i could vaguely impress my mates um, more of them than the mozart on the piano one
1: oh no god if you if you could knock out a bit of a Bit of dire straits, especially if you had a semi acoustic hanging around or somewhere like that. Would it, are what are they called? Washburns? What do they call those gorgeous guitars? That's like really, yeah, oh, stunning things! All right, so you're doing that, you're doing that, you're doing this at boarding school now. Are you allowed electric guitars at boarding school?
0: Yeah, yeah very much. You know, sticking an amp in your room and, and have it, you're allowed to turn it up to about uh just a little under number one, yeah, it's just a,
1: just a under number one yeah. or, or a di to the headphones, yeah, okay, and um. You know, lots of one of our favorite bands at the moment is Bancor Sports Team. They all met at Cambridge. Um you know, lots of this stuff goes on at university. Any other cats in the dorm doing similar things?
0: Not really. Um uh, so my you know, this guy in the older year, Henry O'Bree was his name. He showed me some a few chords, um, but certainly didn't want to be in a band with me. And I think I struggled to find a band at school, such, so you know, one or two. I think that I had a drummer, but really I had a, a best mate. Um, who, who's a different school and, a, and a, a couple of friends who are at other schools. So we literally recorded, in, uh, sorry, we, we practiced independently and then we'd come together and uh, and play. Um, but because obviously I was excited to try and play live, I'd set up gigs um, where we would then um, play having not practiced together ever. You know, the sound check would be our first time practicing. and uh, And the lesson from that is it won't be a good gig.
1: But I mean, fearless though, you know, because, because, you know, when you're younger, you're not brave, you're fearless because you don't have to even contemplate it. And that's what fearlessness is over bravery. And, you know, to, to book those gigs and to just go and do them. So give it, again, paint a picture of one of those gigs, if you don't mind, how long it lasted, who did the singing, who turned up, what happened afterwards?
0: I'm I'm pained to tell you, really. Uh <laughs> Uh, if if I if this was just you and me and there wasn't anyone listening, um, it would be fine. We played at Wantage Girls' School. I think Radley Boys' School came. I remember them throwing some buns. Um, I think I caught a bun halfway through. I remember the keyboard player pressing the demo button on the keyboard and Green Sleeves starting to play. Um, I think I was trying to play Wonderful Tonight by Eric Clapton, but the guitarist was was very keen to play some sort of Jimi Hendrix solos over the top of it 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 wasn't a necessarily a great um a great moment in my life um but you know what you but there was room for improvement
1: uh, when you went to bed after those gigs that night you know was it was it regret was it was it were you being thoughtful you know were you throwing forward to the next gig were you was it analysis what 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 was your mindset
0: yeah, I don't know um there's a sensation, isn't there, when you're crying yourself to sleep, wondering when the sleep's gonna kick in. <laughs> it was
1: I bet you loved it, didn't
0: you? <laughs> we had great, I mean it was great, great fun. And we were, you know, young enough not to care too much. Right. But um, but I think what I I think what I now feel is whenever I bump into someone who says, Oh yeah, do you know? Do you remember that gig? Um and I was there and I definitely feel a physical pain um as I went so uh, hearing that they might have been a witness to it. And were you would you be singing in these gigs? Yeah, I was I was the lead singer.
1: Wow. So so do you remember the first time you ever opened your mouth into a microphone in front of people?
0: Yeah, you know what, I guess that's also um my my mother would say she's responsible for that. I definitely always sung. We've always um sung at home um and I've always um known I could sing. I could always vaguely sing in tune.
1: Okay, and because your voice is is famous for having a certain style. Now, this is after it broke. I'm presuming it did break at some
0: point. I'm still waiting for it to break.
1: It's so funny, though, isn't it? Because, like, you know, blokes that choose to sing in falsetto. One of my favourite bands in the world is a band called Whitney. Guys sing in falsetto all the time. Mick Hocknall used to be in a band, a punk band called the Frantic Elevators. Uh, you know, and then he, you know, he decided to sing in falsetto. Um, and Jimmy Somerville. You know, it's it's a, it's an interesting decision. That
0: was it ever not thus? Um, well, I have a fairly I have a fairly broad range, and I can sing pretty low if I put my mind to it, but I suppose um, writing when I my first album, uh, I just found that you know, my first song that I recorded for that, and it was the first song on the album was a song called High, and I'm singing incredibly high, and I suppose it made it just really stand out, and and I suppose that's what you're just trying to do at that stage, is, is make something that sounds different, and how you can you use your voice in a, a different way, and how can you be unique from all the mass of other people putting music out, how can you just stand out to say, oh, I do something different, and, and that was obviously trick number one
1: yeah no, but also you know you, you find that on the radio when you first start you just start higher not because your voice is high but because you the adrenaline's flowing you're more insecure and then as you get older you, you realize you can back right off and it becomes more useful as a journey as a vocal journey
0: definitely and and i think i mean friends of mine who are the people who are prepared to tell me the truth will probably say do you know i enjoy when you sing lower, rather than that screech up at the top of your range
1: that's a lovely phrase. People who are prepared to tell me the truth. So we were doing this with Roger Stewart two weeks ago. Okay. And he says, and we had a very similar junction in the conversation. And he said, Well, Chris, nobody tells me the truth. Don't be silly. So they haven't told me the truth for years. And I didn't really pick him up on it. Not that it's my job to pick it. And, and he, that's not, it's not that kind of conversation that we're having now or we were having then or we'll have in the future. But it was an interesting point. Now, driving home away from his house, I thought that was really self aware you know and i thought it could be sad but it would be sadder if he
0: didn't know about
1: it yeah
0: totally um and you know and whatever job you're in um if if you're lucky enough to be at the top of the pile there's a, there's a danger of that and i'm you know and i'm sure there's a danger in in your job um and you know in politics they have it must have exactly the same thing of surrounding themselves with a, a bunch of yes men and women who who don't tell them the truth and i think it's it's the danger whenever you're um yeah in, in at the top of any kind of pile
1: so does anybody um who who does whos whose opinion do you rely on, listen to, look forward to fear when it comes to playing new music to people?
0: um well, of course, my wife uh, is you know if she doesn't like a song, it's the most uh, frustrating thing because you know it's the truth. um and again, again, I suppose my mother. Um, it's just it's always a sense of frustration if 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 she says something negative about it because again you just know that that um, she's telling you the truth even if I think wow it's great and of course it's not you know what my audience would necessarily um, want but it's something I'm excited by and and she'll still say no no I just don't like it and you know that no one else is really going to go for it even if I think it was going to turn me into the rock god that I dreamt I was <laughs> going to be.
1: You keep talking about the rock god. Um, g- give us a. Give us a sort of, um, what do they call it, an identikit of the rock god you may have been thinking about and still think about sometimes. You know, sort of the the sort of contingent components of other rock gods to make your super James Blunt rock god.
0: I really aspire to be in the band Europe Um, uh, and, you know, singing Final Countdown with long flaming hair and my foot up on a big amplifier. That's, you know, that's the dream.
1: No, I don't know whether you're taking the piss or not. I'm. I'm gonna bet you are. Well, it would still be a good moment. Yeah, no. So come on, what's the real answer? I mean, I think it's pretty. You know, come on, that would be fun. No, it would be fun. But is that is that the? Because I do think you really did want to be a rock god, and it wouldn't have been the 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 lead of Europe. It would have been who might it have been? Would it be Jim? Um, I don't know. Robert Plant, Jimmy Page, what maybe?
0: yeah i mean absolutely you've hit the nail on the head with with, with that led zeppelin as a moment was a an, uh, a band i listened to and thought this is absolutely astounding and that all all those guitar solos along the way um brian may um and a stand for me an astounding uh guitarist who i thought and all of those solos i learned as well um and uh and and although they're not considered necessarily very cool i thought mark knopfler was a phenomenal um guitar um player and is um uh, but yeah, and I suppose what happened along the way is that having, you know, all these guys in my band who are at different schools and then these gigs that we had no practice, eventually I realised I need to stop playing the electric guitar and pick up an acoustic and I don't need them so much and I can do these songs where I can hold my own on my own.
1: Yeah, you're sort of the reverse of Bob Dylan, aren't you? Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> in so many ways. In
1: so many ways. Um, so did you have you, got to, have you have you had the chance to work with some of the people you've just mentioned? I know you've worked with Art and John and people like that
0: um no i haven't i've met a lot of them um uh, and and all of them um, have been incredibly kind um it's a funny old business isn't it where where people can be so unkind to each other and yet the greats like that um of the jimmy pages of the robert plants of the brian Mays, um have always been incredibly gracious about their phenomenal talent and incredibly supportive of those um younger people um you know to just um yeah try, trying their luck
1: yeah, and so normal. I mean, I don't know whether they were uh, when they were my age and your age. We're a bit apart. We're about 10 years apart. But, you know, now that you meet them, a lot of a lot of them are in the 70s. You know, I met a lot of them when we did TFI Friday and they seemed pretty cool then, but they just, maybe they've just seen it all. They've been there. They've had all the, t- they've sold all the t-shirts as, as well as worn them, you know. And do you think yeah. they've just come back down to earth? Do you think that's what happens? Have they squared the circle or do you think they were just a bit more grounded to start with?
0: I mean, I'm, I think... Yeah, it's it's hard to know, but I don't think they necessarily um will have changed any any great level. Of course, they might have mellowed as they've matured, perhaps. But I don't think they would have suddenly become nice people. I'm sure they would have been pretty good people uh, along the whole journey. Maybe caught up a, a, in the moments um when when there's complete madness. But I'm sure they're probably good people along the way if they are now.
1: Yeah, yeah no, I agree with you
0: because there's, that's the sort of the antithesis
1: of the story you tell. Was it at the key Awards where basically everybody who you really liked refused to be in a photograph with you? Is that a true story?
0: Um, it is. I mean, you know, I, I don't want to get into the kind of the nitty uh, gritty of it, but yeah, it was a time. You know, obviously Oasis and Blur were having, you know, their their competition with uh, along the way as to who's going to be uh, sell them the most and who's going to be the coolest along the way. And they, and I think they confused being cool with being unpleasant. Um, and they have continue, uh, <laughs> continued that um, through much of their lives.
1: <laughs> that's so funny
0: see I thought you were after that I,
1: where, I'm i trying to think when that might have been because yeah, Blur
0: well, after that, that moment but witness to that but those guys you know are still in the business doing their thing and, right. and still do, with the same shtick of being um, unkind to um, anyone they might come across in the business
1: so, I see so I get that so that was a few years because I, I remember the Blur versus Oasis thing because I I'd ho- I only ever hosted One Top of the Pops and it was when they were having that battle for number one um uh, which was way before I think the incident you're talking about, maybe maybe uh, ten yeah. years or so, right? So yeah. so you get into the army. How how hard is it to get in the in the into the army if your dad is already pretty um pretty well received there?
0: I think it's probably pretty easy, isn't it? As as the interview goes, oh, it's Charlie's son, of course. Come on in. <laughs> <laughs> um, how's your dog? How's the how's your mother and how's your dog?
1: Oh my goodness. Uh,
0: uh, you know, there's definitely um, it definitely helps, and also I think it means when you go to somewhere like Sandhurst, which is our 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 academy, our training academy, um, which is a year long, and you you know they turn you turn up and then these um, colour sergeants start screaming blue murder at you, um, and they and they're you know screaming you to climb this mountain and back down, and when you've got down you have to go back up again, you know any number of times. And I think um, it's just the very fact that if you have a, a parent who's already in the army and who's done that, you just know that you can physically do it. You, know, you, you always assume that you can achieve what a parent has achieved that physically or mentally, that you must, if you've come from them, you must be able to do something similar. So it, it just simply takes the pressure off not knowing whether you can do it. And when
1: your dad tells you what you might expect at Sandhurst, how close does that become to the truth?
0: I don't think he really gave me much uh, warning about it. Didn't let me know because uh, it's quite a shock when you get there. I'm mean, not. come from university, and at university, you're, you know, you're you're free, and you're you're in your own. Um. Uh, I lived in a flat with a couple of uh, blokes, and and we had an amazing time. You know, no no parental controls. We're just young adults, and then suddenly, at the when I was dropped off at Sandhurst, my dad dropped me off. I've had a, you, you arrive with a suitcase and an ironing board and these people start screaming at you. You, you don't sleep on your bed in, anymore um, because you've, you, your bed's can be inspected in the morning. And to make your bed perfect, you've, um, you've got an iron and you've ironed it into place. You've used a Bible to measure the folds um, so it's all looking absolutely immaculate. This bed to, takes 45 minutes to make. I'm not going to sleep in it. So you sleep on the floor beside the bed. You don't close the curtains because you've um, folded those um, and pleated them in a, in a way um, so they're they're always open throughout the night, even though there are security spotlights coming through the window. Um, your whole room is a work of art um, with you sleeping on the floor beside it. Um, and and that first night you're thinking, wow, this is, a, this is a bit of a change from the freedom of when you were at university. Um, you know hopefully in in, in bed with uh, someone else from your course. Um, and
1: uh, <laughs> I <basically> suppose senior officer. <laughs>
0: I suppose being woken up at six in the morning for them to start screaming their heads off saying, what's this when they've got dust on their glove. Um, And and you know that dust on their glove hasn't come from from your windowsill because you cleaned your windowsill 10 minutes before they came in Mm. Um, and then throw the window open and chuck the contents of your room out because they've got dust on their hand, which was from the room before.
1: See, the journeys, I mean, it, it's. I think it, you should never qualify the word unique, but I think it's got to be quite unique yours because, you know, you often hear about people getting into music, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old and then going off to do something else whilst they're trying to make it, you know, and hopefully getting back into it or, or actually staying in touch with it throughout their, you know, their the late teens and early 20s and then hopefully making it. But to go off and be in the army, are you, you know, psychologically, had you had you kissed... Um, you know, be, becoming a professional, a successful professional museum goodbye at this point.
0: No, definitely not. Um, I was telling people from before I was in the army and during I was in the army from the get go that I was going to be a musician, and I think I, I kind of knew what I was doing in telling everyone. If I told enough people over and over again that that's what I was going to do, eventually, they said, "Please stop talking about it." <laughs> and please, will you go and do it? Um, I really think I cornered myself um, to, to um, ha- having to go and eventually step out of the army and follow that dream.
1: So, so was there a plan? Was there a chronological plan?
0: Yes, there was. I had to do four years minimum in the army um, to pay them back um, for the money that, that, that I owed them from university. Um, uh, I ended up doing six years uh, because I wasn't ready at that time. No one in the business uh, hadn't quite got things lined up. And my last two years were were in um, Knightsbridge Barracks. I got myself a job as the Queen's ceremonial bodyguard, They're called the horse guards. Um, and that gave me a chance to you know do gigs in in North London bars and, and clubs. Um, and and I joined the House of Cavalry, a reconnaissance regiment, really because I knew that that would be a shorter career within the army than if I joined my dad's regiment, which was um, the Army Air Corps as a helicopter pilot. Um, and I'd done all the grading, I'd done all the tests to be, become a helicopter pilot, passed all of those, was accepted into that regiment, um, and then I had to tell them, you know, uh, that my father was the colonel of that regiment, but I said, you know, he sent a second in command. And uh, that final interview, I said, um, would you tell my dad that I'm not actually going to join the regiment, I'm going to join the uh, reconnaissance regiment, the lifeguards, um, uh, uh, because, uh, yeah, because I knew it would a- end up with me being based in London, still able to follow the dream of becoming a musician.
1: And so, so having sort of given yourself um, the opposite of a head start, so you sort of handicapped yourself from a time point of view, but co- un- completely understandably so, you know, you're sort of the wrong age to, to, to crack on with it. So you're, you're over 25, I'm guessing So you're, you're approaching your 30s. Would that be right, late 20s?
0: I lied immediately about my age when I was getting out, joining the music business. Someone told me you can't be over 25. right. Um, and I was 28, um, and so from the get-go, I was telling people I was younger. I remember, you know, people, I'd have conversations, and then, then and then other things would happen, and they'd see my army card. I still had my army ID card and my date of birth. I'd be busted. But yeah, it seemed like a sensible thing to do. I'd strike I, my. I'm gonna lie, so often I, I'm uh, not keen on telling you my real age. Um, but I'd always strike off a, a seven. I could a, a four. I could write as a seven, um, and take a few years off that way.
1: And so, was there any anxiousness then once you finally got back onto Sydney Street because you were approaching your thirties? Really, uh, regardless of what you were telling everyone, did you? Or, or did was there? Because they always say now, don't they? And I, I really believe in this. You know, the, the, don't let the goal hijack the journey and and make the process really where the gold is. You know, you've already won the lottery if you get to do what you want to do and pick pick a. Pick a, a vector because it helps you to to get the day-to-day done, but don't let it sort of hamstring, you know, um you, you get up in the morning, doing what you love and then going to bed at night. But was there any anxiousness? Did you feel like you were there was a
0: there was a time pressure on you? Not because of my age, definitely not. Um uh, when you're 28, you still feel, you know, insanely young and immature. Um I think the only pressure is it's a really difficult business to be successful in. And that's what my father told me as I was leaving. um he he was genuinely concerned at that moment, saying, "You know you've got a good, stable career in the army, and it's a, a safe place uh, um in that way. um and and to leave, therefore, is a big step. um and and music is a tough old industry. And my answer, which I really um still stand by, is that success, um to me was just the act of doing it right. um to get out and do music um to to be making it, to be writing songs to see if I can get a record deal um is the, is as a success to taking those those basic steps because to have got to old age um and still be saying what I was saying when I was in the army oh yeah, one day i'm going to um step out of this, and one day i'm going to try and be a musician if I'd reached old age still saying that that would have been a failure um and and so yeah, success was was just in the in the in the in the doing and being a musician. And as long as I was enjoying it and having fun, that would be enough for me is is what I stand by.
1: and it, you know, from a percentage point of view, how sure were you about the decision to to be to to try and become a musician and leave the army? was it was it hundred to zero? was it sixty forty how How was that? How did it sit in your tummy?
0: It was hundred percent really um, I was a hundred uh, uh, confident of the decision um and naively, I was pretty confident as well that everything would work out, and I think that naivety is so important. Um, the moment you know uh, how difficult something is, or you know, with, and the reality of it is when, yeah, faced with the truth, um, can can give you a sense of uh, insecurity and fear. I was blindly naive that I would um, leave the army, get a record deal, um, that everyone would like it, um, that would sell a ton, and that I would go on tour for the rest of my life. Um, I think it was yeah that 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 naivety was was a wonderful
1: thing. Now here's the thing. Okay, do you think it's naivety? Because I've heard that from so many people. Do you think that was naivety, or do you think there was there was a there was without getting too deep about it? Do you think there was an inner confidence and an inner knowing? Because I've talked to lots of people about this, and I think it's a bit of both at best, and more knowing than naivety, more probably.
0: Um. Uh, for me, no, I think it was a naivety. I don't think it, I would say it was confidence. Um, I, I think, you know, confident enough to stand up on a stage and sing, and confident enough to p- play publicly, absolutely. Uh, but, but genuinely, a naivety that that to know how incredibly hard it is. And you know what? I think after the event, I struggle now slightly. I, I'm still incredibly confident standing on a stage, and I played in front of you, um, and uh, and you can see that I'm very comfortable. Uh, expressing myself musically and and in, in, in the in my role and my gig as a musician, uh, but now I kind of that naivety has gone slightly, and I personally I don't think I'll ever have an album that will be as big um, as Back to Bedlam, um, or a song that will sell as much as You're Beautiful because I think I and I think I have better songs along the way personally, but I think I also don't come with that blind naive confidence, um, and it's really interesting working with. Um, with Ed Sheeran, I've toured with Ed, and he's a mate, and and he has an, an amazing uh, confidence. But I but I and I, I really remember it as related to the, how naive I felt at my at the beginning that it would work. And he's, and he's, I suppose he's tr- he's gone beyond that, hasn't he? His naivety has gone into confidence. The result of what's happened, and he's carried it on. I definitely along the way um, lost that naivety and and faced with reality.
1: It's funny because I was listening to a, a U.S. Um, Navy SEAL talk last week about, about giving thoughts, feelings, insecurities, confidence, or securities, um, uh, oxygen, you know, articulate them, g- saying them out loud. And they said, he said that in the U.S. Navy SEALs, you know, you, you, are, you are taught to scream what you want to happen and scream what you don't want to happen. And it's, it's you know, you, you've just said there, you've, you've given the phrase oxygen. Uh, you know, I don't think I'll ever have an album as big as this. I don't think I'll ever have a song as big big as this. Now he would say, by the way, um, I'll give you his number after the chat if you want. He he would say the fact that you've actually said those things out loud suggests to him that you are giving yourself permission for it not to happen. What do you think about that?
0: I totally, and so here's the thing, you know, my next album is going to come out and i'm going to be doing some interviews and i'm going to come on your show uh hopefully if i'm invited to flogging my wares and and you're going to say you know is it your best album and i'm going to go you know yeah this is my best album <laughs> <laughs> and you know it's we're just going to go i don't know i don't know just <laughs> not very convincing there um, <laughs> It's a and you know I, because I put out I put out six albums and every time and the last one by the way I you know I believe is a better album than my first but I don't think I could I would be confident or comfortable saying an interview yeah this is a better album than the first album mm. um, I don't think I could say that in an interview because you just yeah I just haven't got it in me all
1: right let's go let's go back to the army um, let's go back to the fact that you know we have literally. Um, skimmed across the fact that you did spend all this time in the army, and you did see, uh, you know, first-hand combat, and you, you did. It says here um, prevent World War Three, which I know is a story you've been asked about a lot. Um, but you became, were you a tank commander or a tank captain? Is it the same thing? I don't know. I'm sorry.
0: Yeah, close enough. Uh, a tank commander and uh, and a troop commander. So I had, I was obviously, you know, in charge of my tank. Um, which is, they're very. I, I'm a small person, so I, I fit in a small tank as well. Only three of us um and uh, and then i also had five uh a total of five tanks um and that makes up a troop
1: right okay so this story it's it's you know it was reported on the bbc it you were asked to do something and both you and um your your senior your commanding officer at the time or i suppose do you have an, a commanding officer above you even though you're a commanding officer is that how it works yes
0: yeah you do yeah so you have um yeah you know you can go through the, through the ranks there's a captain above us um in the charge of a um and then there's a, a a major in charge of him you know and and it goes up
1: okay so so can you just if you don't mind james if could you just describe where you were what were your, you were asked to do and, and why you didn't do it and what the risks were to you personally of 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 not carrying out the orders
0: um, so my job is reconnaissance. I'm um, the eyes and ears of my superiors. I go out um, up to and beyond enemy lines. I try and identify um, where the enemy are and what their intentions might be. Relay that information back. Um, during the bombing campaign, obviously, you know, uh, that was part of a, a targeting of uh, the enemy, and then the, we had an uh, aircraft uh, come in um, and engage with them. Um, so that was a really intense uh, period on the kind of Macedonia-Kosovo border. And then when um, the peace accord had been signed, then we tried to move as fast as we could to Pristina, the capital. Um, and, and I was stuck at the very front um, of that column of 30,000 people uh, to lead with my troop to head up to Pristina as fast as we possibly could. Um, and again, that wasn't without difficulties, a huge pressure of 30,000 people behind you, and uh, news channels all over the place. Mines and mine fields all around us booby traps as they go. Um, and we were told, you know, to get there as fast as possible because the Russians were coming in um uh, and they were trying to beat us to the airport in Pristina. and and obviously, whoever holds the airport uh, has access to you know, the logistical access of uh, of getting um equipment and supplies in. So you really want to have control of that. And so we really wanted to beat the Russians anyway. Um, with all this pressure and go, 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 and don't mind the minefields, push on through, ignore the booby traps, let's just get there. And we arrived. And lo and behold, the Russians had been allowed in by the Serbs much faster, much more easily than us and beat us to the airport. And the instruction uh, had come through from uh, General Wesley, Major General Wesley Clark, um, for us, we should overrun and overpower them. Um, and, uh, And... to us, even the wording sounds bizarre because the word is, you know, destroy. Um, we're engaged with an enemy, but um, but overrun and overpower is not within our doctrine in the first place. Um, and whilst we have been given these instructions, um, it was a very simple thing to question and say that sounds bizarre. Not only uh, because of the wording, but also we were told that the Russians were part of our our Kosovo force, K4. Um, they came under the same title. Um, they were supposed to be on our side in some way. We know we know they weren't. And we know they were playing the games that they often do play, the deceptions that the Russians are very good at. Um, uh, but then to the instructions to overrun and overpower them seemed exactly the opposite of, of what we were there to do. And it seemed like it would have huge, huge consequences. Um, And fortunately for me, we had a a phenomenal um, commander, who's General Mike Jackson, who whilst we were there and this uh, Mexican standoff was going on and whilst we were questioning um, our instructions and whether the the consequences would be um, entirely um, bad, uh, our our commander, General Mike Jackson, um, confronted Wesley Clark, uh, his words, which I didn't hear um, face to face, with, well, you know I'm not having my soldiers be responsible for starting World War III. Um, and and our instructions came back to pull back, surround the airport, um, and uh, and kind of you know hold off in that way. And I think after a couple of days, the Russians said they had no food, no water, and could could we NATO um, share our food and water and supplies with them? And 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 obviously a deal was struck that you, there you can we we'll let you have that if you share the airport, um, and, and that's how. Yeah, that's how General Mike Jackson averted World War 3 I'd already pushed on at that stage. We'd pushed on to um, go up to the Kosovo-Serb border to continue um, with other tasks.
1: And when you recount, you know, um, events like that, how does that make you feel? I mean, you're just telling a story now, but it really happened. You know, were you scared? Were you nervous? How did you sleep at night? Were you
0: exhausted? Uh, at the time, there's definitely no sense of fear, but uh, a, a real desire not to embarrass yourself. um not to let uh, your team down or um you know, or th- not let the soldiers down who you're in command of, um not let your parents down because you think they're gonna be watching because they are literally you know the news channels everywhere. um and uh, and so that kind of that kind of is the clarity of, of thought of just doing the right thing by other people and and then yeah of course you're absolutely exhausted by the end of the day i mean when you go into a, a war zone when it comes to nighttime you suddenly that first day the bizarre thought you have at the end of the first day is hey when when do i sleep you know because because nothing really stops at, uh, in in that kind of zone um and you can hang on i'm i'm, I'm here for 6 months when am i going to sleep if we're in a war zone when it just carries on um and you learn to sleep like a dog literally where you are that first night i slept in my tank with my eyes uh still looking through the periscope of the tank, just leaning on on that periscope and um how do you how do you sleep now um uh, I, I always sleep pretty lightly, which is really useful when you're in the army, and not so useful if you're in a and really need the sleep <laughs> So funny! I mean, you know, I'm, I, we're giggling.
1: I'm laughing. You know, it's so bizarre. You've had such a bizarre life. Um, uh, d- you weren't frightened then. Do you, do you get without getting into um, PTSD territory? Do, do you get because I, I often have been think I'm going to be nervous about something we do in this job, silly job of ours, and then. I don't get nervous. But then afterwards, when it's done, I start to shake. I get, I get post-nervous, if you know what I mean. Do you get post-scared?
0: Not in my time in the army. I, mean, I had, you know, had one uh, dream about it afterwards. That's it. I've never felt much stress about it. And I think it was really useful coming from the countryside, uh, strangely. Um, because if you live, we live by a farm. We saw uh, dead animals. Um, uh, and, and so going into uh, Kosovo, which was a place of genocide, and there was a lot of death, Around us, and I think if you could relate it to what you'd seen on a, on the farm, um, it became much easier to process mentally. Whereas soldiers who come from a city, you could see that they struggled with it much more. Um, and then, as far as nerves go, in in my gig now, um, I don't. I, on a, when I get up on my own stage, I don't. Weirdly, I think you probably notice when I come and play in front of you on a radio when there's pressure like that. I definitely start getting into a thing where I'm, you know, I, I'm highly focused. And 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 definitely, I enjoy that adrenaline that kicks around. But it comes—that adrenaline comes only because you're aware of, yeah. There's some kind of a fear related to it, isn't there, yeah. um, of the moment?
1: So from the sublimely serious to the absolutely ridiculous. Um, so let's talk about this book uh, that you've just—it's <laughs> about to come out. I've had a very advanced copy of it, and it's—it's it's bloody hilarious, is what it is. So it's called How to Be a Complete. And utter a blunt, you know, and if you consider you can describe how what the, the format of the book because it's really I didn't know about the format of the book um until I got it, and I was really surprised by it, and I was very pleasantly surprised by it, I have to say. um but if you think about what we've just been talking about and then think about this world your your book deals with, I mean, it couldn't be more ridiculous and did, is that what helps you to? Have fun with the Twitter sphere and with social platforms in general. The fact that you have you have literally stared death in the eye, you've been kept awake by potential death at night, and then you are entering into a world where which is is so far removed from anything that's usually important you think what the heck and you know you could never say this but i thought this the second i read it i thought you know they have no idea who they're dealing with what this man has experienced where his brain has been they have no idea where his focus has been and how deep he's had to dig do you think you're ever going to get anywhere near scratching scratching the 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 absolute outer dermis of his skin
0: i uh, i mean i think you're entirely right that if you are a, um, a short, skinny, uh, uh, tough officer in the army, with my high-pitched, uh, you know, ridiculous accent uh, and you're suddenly in charge of a bunch of soldiers from Newcastle who've been in for years, um, th- and the amount of ribbing um, that they might have given me through my time in the army, um, and abuse that uh, anyone on Twitter... Um hasn't uh yeah won't come near to it. <laughs> so I think my soldiers of our work have put me in very good stead.
1: So just describe the format of the book for us. Just describe, for people who don't know, an alien has just landed. Um, what the heck are we talking? What the heck is this bit of the interview about, James? Just just to explain it to the alien.
0: Yeah, this is um, this is my uh, Twitter persona. Um, and Twitter feed effectively put into diary format. So it's um, so it's um, my life, a year of my life, a year in my life um, as a diary, um, as a Twitter feed.
1: Right. Now, the first time I ever heard the word Twitter was at the Roundhouse in Camden. And there was a guy behind us who worked for the BBC He was going to be in charge of our Twitter. And we didn't have a bloody clue what he was talking about. And he stood behind us and started to... To punch, to type into his phone what was going on at this gig. And that's, that was our first Twitter experience. He was doing this thing called tweeting. Um, and then we left it alone. I think we left it alone for a couple of years. And then we all re-engaged with it. Tell us, tell us your, 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 um, your experience with dating
0: Twitter. Um, I've really never wanted to be on social media or, or, or been that active on it. Um, I just think the real world is much more interesting. Um, but as part of my job, the, the, the um, record label really wanted me to, so that I can post a message saying, yeah, I've got a new album out now, um, which seems really boring to me. And then if you look through most um, uh, either you know actors or musicians' Twitter feeds, it's, it's just really an advert, which seems all pretty dull stuff. But they they told me to start up an account. I did. My James Blunt was already taken, so my Twitter handle was Dirty Little Blunt, um, <laughs> and uh, and so you know by having access to it, then I could at least see what was going on in the Twitter sphere. And when I did, you know, uh, put out a song, an album, or or do a live performance, I could then see the response. And and as as you know, there was a certain backlash to um to the ubiquity of my song You're Beautiful within the UK. Um, and so, just yeah. Um, so, reading the the vitriol and negativity that was um, that people fed back whenever my name came up was was you know just an amazing thing to read. Not something that one you know was very proud of. If I ever had a friend there, I wouldn't want them to see because it's marginally embarrassing in many ways. Um, but there was a, that was a beautiful moment for me because whereas before. Um, people would write comments on, you know, under newspaper articles and things, and all the negativity. Suddenly, with my own uh, account, I I could answer. Whereas in in interviews on uh, in with newspapers, they would always twist my words as if I and they they never say ha ha after my joke. They always said said my comment as if I'd said something seriously. Yeah, 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 with yeah. Twitter, I could say it unedited, um, and it would come straight from me, no middleman, and I could simply respond. And I suppose the response was just a humanization. Uh, people would 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 yeah hear a reply from not someone you know a celebrity or a musician, um but a real human being
1: and so can you give can you remember the
0: first tweet you ever replied to um, I'm pretty sure it was someone who said, uh, can we all take a moment to remember how terrible James Blunt was?" and I wrote, "No need, I have a new album out soon." Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and you know i could go through the book but they're better coming for you can you rec- can you just give us like three or four zingers if you don't mind can you recall those
0: um they're all pretty shocking aren't they i mean i you know one person would say uh i've woken up with james blunt uh stuck in my head and i would write and my balls on your chin um <laughs> <laughs> just awful things um and what else um Oh, I can't think of them. I can't think of a safe one. They're all so perverse.
1: Well, they are perverse. But you seem to take great glee. In, in, in. I mean, I can only imagine the shock of somebody when they get not only a reply back from you. Um, I should imagine that for some bizarre reason, I'm thinking they're quaking their boots because not only do they do they think, oh my goodness, goodness me, he's ready. Oh my goodness me, it's going to be retweeted to all his fans now. Um and I was in a bad mood or I was drunk or I was, I don't know I don't even I don't to be honest I don't even care about James Blunt why did I why did I say this week um but yeah, then, but then know. it's also really funny as well you 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 reply with humor which is the the most painful sort of all isn't it if it's if it's at your expense
0: yeah totally and I think you know I- I would hope never that then as a result you have you know how many millions of people um bullying that person in reply and often what i do is i do direct message a person and say hey i hope you're okay and it's all in good humor and i didn't take it personally and i hope you don't either and i think that's often necessary because suddenly they they have a million notifications
1: So decent of you. That last yeah. bit is so ridiculously decent of you. I mean, one of the things that you get a lot is, you know, you must spend – this is not me saying it. It's somebody tweeting you saying, you know, you must spend all day looking for your name on Twitter. Why do you even do this, you absolute sado? I mean, did at any point – did you become so addicted to – if you became addicted at all uh, because you were finding it so – it was it was easy easy prey in the end, wasn't it? Or it still is because you're so <laughs> –
0: no, I mean, I only, I only post about. If you look at my timeline, I only post about once a month. Right. Um, so I'd go on, and that's why some of them, I might pick one that's about a month old, because I'll, you know, just come back, look for something fun, and, re- and respond.
1: I love this. Uh, fuck you, James Blunt, and you reply. I'm sorry, but you'll have to get to the back of the queue for that one. Um,
0: I enjoy one that said, "I would like to sit James Blunt down and explain to him, note by note, why I um hate his song." Um, I, think he, I think he was more—he expl- was ruder than that. But I said I'd like to sit you down um, and explain dollar by dollar why I don't care.
1: Yeah, I know, I know. Hilarious. Uh, why does um, this is? I won't read out who sent it, but this is all in his book. This is all in the book. Why does James Blunt seem like his willys being stood on? And James replies, "Damn things always getting caught under my feet." Just just a common sweetheart would have been even better there, wouldn't it? Sweetheart. <laughs> love it, love it, love it. Um, have you ever have you ever got it wrong yourself, you know, in reply?
0: Um, I don't think I've I don't think I've ever deleted a tweet for for any reason, other than you know, I might have made a spelling mistake and right. then deleted it, easy to try and get it back. But but no. I mean, I think pretty hard about the consequence of doing something. And I think you've got to, if you're gonna tweet something, you have to um accept the consequences yeah. um and, and own it as such um and so so no i um i haven't deleted anything james blunt is
1: my guilty pleasure james replies mine is anal
0: yeah <laughs> by the way people
1: people oh, behind the glass in the oh, studio oh, they're killing them they are killing themselves laughing behind the glass here oh my goodness me and so so um so what's the future of you in twitter are you are you are you together forever
0: um, you know, hopefully it's another social um, media platform that will um, die a death within a couple <laughs> of weeks, if we're really lucky, because people are just so unkind. And, you know, obviously the, the book itself is not just the tweets, is it? It's, you know, it's, it's my introduction and it's, it's put in a, in, a, in, a, in a diary form, in a journey, my, my journey of, of Twitter and, and along how it goes. Um, but, but people, as I explain, are just so desperately unkind um and, and without yeah and as if as if their opinion really is fact and as if and and without any kind of sense of compassion for other people and realise the consequences of words and you know words are hugely important um and deeply affecting of, of each other and amazing how Twitter has allowed us not to take that responsibility.
1: James Blunt, how come you've only got two hundred thousand followers? Because Jesus only needed twelve. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. What do you think of Trump and his tweet? Do you follow anyone? I mean, do you, do you, do you actively get involved in Twitter for reasons other than having a right laugh at, um, at silly people's expense?
0: I really think we should up the uh, the uh, the ante um, with the American election at the moment, and I think we should all agree on Twitter to block whoever loses out of the election, be it Biden or Trump, because I think you have put the <clears throat> the odds are on then, um, and the pressure would be on. But I think it would be a really great thing if we ever lost, we just blocked so we never heard from again.
1: Well, whose idea was it to put them in a book, by the way? Because a great, it's a fantastic idea, and it's a really funny book as well.
0: Um, yeah, well, you know, I haven't toured for the whole year. I need, needed to make some cash.
1: Oh yes, yeah, sure, well, you did.
0: Uh, so yeah, we, you know, the tour finished uh, in mid March. So so I've been twiddling my thumbs, and that's why I thought I'd put put pen to paper.
1: Well, it's great fun. Um, let's just uh, talk a bit more about about you and that song. Uh, You're beautiful because have you read the subtle art of not giving a fuck? No, I haven't. Have you heard of it, the Mark Manson book? I have, and I haven't read it. Okay, well, it's it, obviously it's, it's a very famous book. It still sells by the millions. It sells You know, I think it sells a million copies a year. And Mark Manson from a literary point of view, um, he had a very similar experience to you from a musical point of view because he had all these things that he'd always wanted to do as far as being a writer was concerned. But then his first book was an absolute smash hit. So it all sort of happened too quickly for him to enjoy it. Even though, you know, by the way, he's still at it. But he was, he was sort of, um, he, was, he was psyching himself and girding his loins for this sort of 10 minute on, sorry, this ten-year onslaught, you know, at the, at the book industry thing, and I, you know, I'll get there one day. But then his first book is a smash out of the blocks, and he he didn't really know what to do next. You know, how were you with that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I was definitely liberated by the success of my first album because it meant you know I was still in a record deal, and most people get you know knocked off their record deal after their first album, um, and I was still in and, and probably for the long haul. So it gave me great freedom to do the music that I wanted. I guess what I've you know, my, my music's sold around the world. Um, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I was, you know, super big in Azerbaijan still. Um, <laughs> so super secure in many ways. The thing I was struggling with was, um, was probably English-speaking countries. You know, the UK gave me a really hard time. And so, despite being allowed to put music out, I was probably struggling with being a- accepted within the the music business, um, and within the you know within the UK. But I'm still been doing music and still thoroughly enjoying what I, that. And I suppose as time has gone on, eventually, I, I've then thought, okay, well, I may not be um uh, you know spoken of highly in the, in musical circles, um, but I'm still loving what I do, and maybe that's at that stage, you start to care less and enjoy it more. And that's why, as you've probably heard on my last album, you know, you you heard the album and you've loved the songs because it's a person who's in the music and not worrying too much about the music business.
1: Isn't that interesting that you, that you point that out yourself and you say it again, very self-aware. And it's something that I didn't understand. And I still don't, even though you talk about it a lot. And I've read about it from your point of view a lot. Because I don't think it was as you perhaps um, were interpreting it to be. I think some people were saying the things you've just said about your music, but most of us have
0: always really liked you and what you you do. And I guess that's the problem with something like Twitter, um, is that it amplifies just the noisy people, whereas there will be a quieter majority, um, who will, you know, who will enjoy something and won't need to say something um particularly vitriolic.
1: But do, you know, having said that out loud now, um, do you do you feel like you you weren't misunderstood, but you were misunderstanding how you were understood by by I you know. I mean, there, there weren't any James Blunt jokes around, there, you know, and we were in the thick of it all. We
0: were, you know, we still are. Well, you're sweet for saying so. Um, yeah, you know, absolutely. Of course, the numbers, if you take it in a numbers game, you're right. I'm really lucky. Um, uh, millions of albums have been bought by someone. Um, so, so yeah, absolutely. Uh, but but then again, uh, on the other, scale, other side of the scale, if you were to say, you know, what what music... If you're going to say who you listen to, um, who you're a fan of, you're unlikely to say you're a fan of, let's say, James Blunt's music because there's something inside you that will want people to go, oh, yeah, he's got a good taste in music. So you're more likely to go and say, I'm a fan of, I don't know who you'd go for. You'd go for, you know, you tell me.
1: Well, what's interesting about that is that, again, you know, apropos Rod Stewart a couple of weeks ago, um, we played loads of Rod's uh, music on the show the day we were going to go and interview him. And uh, I think we did eight till nine, you know, and we really smashed it. And then we were getting all these texts from people saying, "Oh my goodness me, I didn't realise, but I'm a closet Rod Stewart fan." Oh my god, how great is Rod Stewart? I didn't realise how I didn't realise how much I liked him. Well, if you didn't fucking realise, who did you expect to realise? And then, so I go to Rod and I tell him this story. He says, "Chris, there aren't enough closets in the world for closet Rod Stewart fans." And I, I and he and a lot of that came from sort of the mid mid-80s, you know, sort of late 70s, mid-80s, the Kenny Everett days, when Kenny Everett was taking the mickey out of him a, a bit, well, a lot, to be honest. You know, and, and yet it's all come back. You know, and Rod's, bigger than, Rod's bigger than ever. Now, you're 45, 46 years old now-ish, yeah? So it's 35, <laughs> <I> can <laughs> 35. He's still 50. He's yet to join the army, the man I'm speaking <laughs> to now. But it's, it's interesting, isn't it, how this is going to pan out? Because if you think, of, you know, we are all we are all, all our own future past aren't we so where do you think it's this might land finally this journey when do you think you might feel i mean you feel very at ease with things anyway but i think your career has been more successful not it's not just not, not just the numbers from i can't tell you how you feel about your career but i think your career's been fantastic
0: fantastic you know and you know i am i am insanely lucky and you know and and i and all singer-songwriters have their ups and their downs, and you know, and I've had a huge, a huge up and and other ups with it, and some downs that have gone with it. And right now, I'm in an insanely lucky position. I'm on a, i am on do, I tour and play arenas um, around UK and Europe, um, and and play to audiences which I, you know, still as a child would have only have dreamt of. Um, and insanely lucky to do that. And so, yeah, in a, in a very good place. But it's, but it has been a journey and a roller coaster along the way.
1: And so. When you became a family man, you then went on tour a lot, having settled down a bit. Was there any conflict there?
0: Uh, I think, um, yeah. I suppose uh, you can't. Then I don't want to be away from home and to the same level. I would, my first tour was two and a half years long. Mm. I've settled into um, much shorter ones now. They're just eighteen months long. <laughs> um, but uh, but you know, eighteen months away from home is a long time, and and I and I have struggled without having a young family and and those. Those songs on that last album were all about that struggle, really, about the leaving my wife behind um, to pick up the pieces um, to for her to have a child of me to not see that child for one year um, is, you know, those are remarkable and terrible things.
1: Yeah and also you know I don't rub it in because you're right it's it's time you can't buy back and I've had that experience myself you know it doesn't matter how much you earn in the future it doesn't matter what uh, heights you rise to you can't you know there isn't a time machine you know there's a, there's, a, there's the present there's the future but you can't go backwards uh, how does that Absolutely. how does that
0: sit in your tummy this year for me personally um has been a blessing in disguise um, you know, it was, a, it was a terrible moment when my tour came to a grinding halt in Germany and that we had to send, you know, the, the buses and the trucks with the crew and the band all home and, and say, you know, see you in a year's time. Um, but I have taken a sabbatical um, that I promised my wife I would take, but was always lying to her um, <laughs> about um, and the opportunity to spend time with, with a young family while they're growing up has been, has been wonderful in, in that respect.
1: Can we talk about your dad before you go? Yeah, of course. Okay, um, just just let's talk about, for, again, for the alien, um, let's talk about monsters. Let's talk about where your dad was um, before that, where he was when you're writing it, where he was literally when you were filming the video, and then what's happened since.
0: Um, my father uh, found out a, a few years ago, two or three years ago, uh, that he needed a kidney. He'd had, uh, he was at stage four chronic kidney disease. Um, I wasn't a match um, nor my, nor anyone in our, in our close family. Um, and obviously as a, as a son, it's a pretty shocking moment when you realize that your father is in, you know, in that kind of a state, um, and, and his own, and his mortality is, is laid bare in that way. And so I wrote the song, Monsters. Um, and yeah, and it's really about when I suppose I could only write it because I'd had little children, and suddenly you realise that you know you put your little children to bed, and realise actually that when when my father used to put me to bed, suddenly it's my turn mm. to look after him. It's my turn to chase his monsters away, and mm. and um, the words saying you know I'm not your son, you're not my father. We're just two grown men saying goodbye. No need to forgive. No need to forget. I know your mistakes, and you know mine. A real moment of, of two grown-ups looking at each other and and seeing each other as equals. So it was an amazing song for me to write, an amazingly difficult song to play him, um, hoping he'd take it the right way um, and to put out. And, and the reaction was incredible. Um, and, and only really because you then played it on the radio did it get such visibility. Um, and, and only because you played it, then the record label said, we must make a video. Um, and, uh, and, and I called my dad and said, would you be in that? I was, again, really nervous of asking him. Um, and, and he was totally up for it. And and I have to say, the magic for me is um, is not necessarily just the successes that might have come with this, that song, of that song, uh, but because I now have on video form, I have my father with me as I sing to him, um, and, and he looks so incredibly graceful um, and, uh, and calm. And whilst the song is me saying, Daddy, I'm um, here to look after you, you really see from the video that I'm Totally wrong. And I'm in floods of tears oh. um as I'm singing him this song, and this man is there beside me, putting his arm on mine as and still my father, and will always be my father, no matter how unwell he might be.
1: yeah, it was a, it was a nice idea, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, it was sweet. Um, and, it, and it was remarkable having him there. And, and on, on the set, literally, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. Everyone was crying behind the camera, apart from my father going, hey, what the hell are you doing? I'm I'm still fucking alive.
1: <laughs> and he's still alive. And two grown men saying goodbye have yet to say goodbye.
0: Totally. Well, and then remarkably, remarkably from the experience, um, A a large handful of people came forward offering kidneys to him, which is just absolutely mind blowing. And their stories were always incredible. You know, a man whose daughter had had a liver transplant, and he said, "You know, I just want to pay back, um, you know, to the people who saved my daughter." Um, And and others coming forward were just so touching. But in the end, we found um, a a distant cousin of ours um, who's very very close to us um as a result of this whose name is charles blunt and my father is called charles as well so so charles blunt gave charles blunt a kidney which is quite dangerous in the operating theater because you really don't want them to get muddled up so we had to write on their foreheads you know giver and uh, and no
1: see. you did not
0: yeah we did um and uh and to make sure that <laughs> the right one was taken out and they take the kidney and um, the, the good kidney from from Charles Monk Jr. Yeah. and they strapped into uh, Charles Blunt Sr. But they don't take away the 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 bad any bad kidneys. So my father now has three kidneys in him, mm. um, and uh, and and is looking. And he, where he was looking slightly jaundiced, slightly yellow before, he looked very pink. Um, looks very healthy um, and is in, in fine form. As is the donor. The donor has a totally normal life, and 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 we're very very lucky.
1: From a donor point of view, I mean, it's as big a deal for the donor, isn't it, from a physical recovery point of view as it is to the person receiving the kidney? I mean, it's this is no small feat by any stretch of the imagination.
0: I think um, he would say no. I think he would say, actually, he'd been totally fine. It, you know, it was within three days, he was out of the hospital, up and running and living a totally normal life. I think you know if he were older and 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 his body starts deteriorating, then yeah, he doesn't have a spare. He doesn't have the second kidney in him to alleviate that. So um, so it's a huge undertaking to say I you know I yeah um I, I trust in my in my lone kidney that I'm living with, and I hope I'll be a healthy human being for the rest of my life. In yeah. um,
1: and how long? So your dad is completely fine now. So is, is he is living a normal life? Is he back to you know full health? Totally, very wow. healthy. Community. He was always
0: very healthy before. Um, he, obviously, through his illness, he then had a very restricted diet, um, and was, and you could see him being tired all the time. And now he's um, got energy and he's healthy and, and wonderful. Seeing, and, and I and I hope he lasts a long time. He's obviously hiding a lot um, from from the virus because he's immunosuppressed, taking drugs that uh, stop him rejecting the um, the donor kidney. Um, And those drugs then make him susceptible to coronavirus. So he's obviously isolating.
1: And had you not written the song, would that not have happened, do you think? Do you think he'd he'd no longer be with
0: us? Um, I think um, uh, I I know for sure that that our our cousin would have still given him that kidney, actually. Um, uh, But it was just incredibly touching that others should come forward in in that way. Wow. Great.
1: Has he been to your pub?
0: He has before. He hasn't been since the coronavirus. Um, but he's been to the pub since. The pub is up and running really well, actually, and and people have been incredible because we have a 10 p.m. curfew, and people kind of know that let's get in, let's get in early, um, and uh, and and the pub is still alive and kicking, um, it, despite these really difficult times.
1: So you've given us so many lessons in how to wow this morning. Um, just give us um, another lesson in how to run a pub successfully. So, having owned two, I actually own three. Um, I don't own any anymore. It's not easy. It can be insane to do this. Um, You seem to have pulled it off. Um, Tell us about the trepidation or the blind enthusiasm that got you down this particular rabbit hole um, without giving too much away of where you live and things like that. Uh, But just give give us a couple of minutes on that, James, if you don't mind.
0: Yeah, well, it was my local pub. Uh, Called the Fox and Pheasant. It was so run down. We called it the Fox and Unpleasant. Um, And we we sat in there and thought, what? You know, someone needs to give this a bit of love. Um, And we played a game of what would you do if you, you know, if you did own this? And anyway, it came up for sale. Green King flogged it, and it was being uh, bid on to uh, by people to try and turn it into flats. And I thought, you know what? It's my job as a pop star. <laughs> um to buy it and keep it as a as a pub, um I just you know no no matter what even you know if it, if it's a if it's a loss or whatever, then then i'll I'll give it a go, and I'll do my best to try and make it break even and not uh, embarrass myself in that way. and I think a London pub in a pretty good location it's it's got uh, it's got you know it's got a chance, and if I can get in a really great chef um and fundamentally um get in a really great team, then hopefully we' we would have um at least broken even and I have you know, as everyone who goes to my pub will say, there's the nicest bunch of people working in there ever. And When the Coronavirus kicked in, you know, the main job was to make sure that I didn't lose those guys. And that they were looked after because the, you know, the, the, the building, the bricks and water are one thing, but the thing that gives it life are the staff. um, and uh, And they are the heart and soul of my pub.
1: But you didn't flinch, did you, on – not, that's not the right word. You didn't skimp, rather, on um, the refit. Uh, that was very impressive. I've been down to the kitchens. I've seen the beer garden that is no longer, but something even better than a beer garden could ever wish to be. I mean, you really went for it. Was that was that by accident or design or a bit of both?
0: I think just as far as, you know, the staff were going on to give them the best kitchen they could work in so they can do the – you know, they wouldn't complain and say this is, they've got the, all the tools um, – for them, So they could say, yes, yeah, the best kitchen we could possibly have. I actually got the chef in and said, will you design your ultimate kitchen? And then I said to him, you've made the ultimate kitchen now. Now will you come and work here? Um, and then, yeah, you know, and then I thought, okay, well, the pub is a really beautiful old pub. It just needs a bit of varnish. And then my main focus was to make the loo's really nice because obviously I just know that's an important place.
1: Yeah, by the way, the loo's are exceptional. I have to say they might be the best loo's I've ever been into in a pub.
0: Yeah, exactly. Totally. And, yeah. uh, and I don't know if I told you about this I was in um, Soho House in Germany, in Berlin, and you know, because that stage, that pub is being built, and I'm looking for things that I might like in different places. And you know, what can I install in my pub? And I was in the loo in Soho House, and I, at the and used the urinal, and I thought this urinal is fantastic; it's perfect. So I stepped back and I took a photo of a <laughs> of a just freshly used urinal, and a and a German walked in and saw a man taking a picture of a urinal and thought, oh "My God, that guy is." a freak, and then worse, still recognize me and said, Oh my God, you're James Blunt, yeah. (laughs) And so somewhere on the planet right now, probably in Berlin, is a German telling another friend of his, I I met James Blunt once and he's like, he's a urinal fetishist, takes photos of them. But those are the urinals that we have in the fox and pheasant and they're phenomenal.
1: Good. Um, if you could recommend one dish off the menu and something to drink with it, what would you recommend?
0: We have a truffle chicken Kiev. <laughs> right, um, with, with a cold glass of white wine or a pint of ale? We actually have our own Fox and Fez lager, yep. um, which is delicious, and uh, we have a chocolate souffle pudding. Um, when you're uh, in the Fox and
1: pheasant and you think about Ibiza, what do you think about? And when you're in Ibiza and you think about the fox and pheasant, what do you think about?
0: I, de- I get the report because I'm here, you know, out here in Ibiza for, and I've been here for a long time. Um, and uh, I get the reports from the pub every morning and and I can see what's sold. And uh, literally I wake up every day and my mouth starts watering thinking, God, I could just really, <laughs> really want to be back home in an English pub with a pint. Um, uh, having some good, um, some, some good food, and I do miss that.
1: See, now that's my argument. Every time Tash says she wants to live in Ibiza, but it only holds water about once every two months.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, well, why do you come and visit? This is exactly, I'll go back to what I'd say to my mother-in-law. Why do you come and visit? But why do you not move here?
1: Right. Okay. And um, do you really have a nightclub at the Botany Garden? Because you talk about it all the time. I do. What does that mean? Um, what is that? Is like, is that like the Keith Richards' pub in his garden, which is a bit like a pub, but not really. Is it a full-on nightclub? Could you open it and make money there?
0: Yes. All right. Um, definitely. <laughs> I uh, I have uh, lights from uh, Ritzy's nightclub in Swindon, Woo! second-hand one. Um, uh, there's you know, a couple of smoke machines in there. There's a, a, a glitter ball sound system. Uh, you know about the big sign sign there in neon saying Blunty's nightclub, where everybody's beautiful. And uh, and I do have a mannequin on the door called Svetlana who, uh, who controls who's allowed in and who's not.
1: Okay. Um, very quickly. Um, so, A, what's the next six months look like? Maybe, hopefully. Uh, let's, let's go the next year. Um, when might you come and have a pint in your pub? And what does Monday look like in Ibiza for you post this conversation?
0: Um, it is, uh, it's just really hard to know what's going on actually with with the virus, isn't it? At this stage, you know, time seems to be going and and nothing seems to be progressing and here we are obviously in a second wave. Um, at the moment I have, my tour has been postponed and I'm getting on the road from March, 2021 and fingers crossed that will still go ahead. I'm going to play in the Royal Albert Hall, um, in May and I really hope we'll go ahead, you know. We've we set up this tour. We did all our production. We got this all this music lined up. And we were having so much fun on the on the on the tour, and it was and we're devastating to stop. So fingers crossed that will be up and running for twenty twenty
1: one. Okay, and what about um typical Monday in Ibiza for the Blunt or the Blount family?
0: Um, for the Blunt family, I have a um, box in front of me. I've just signed one thousand five hundred pages of my book, and I need to go to the post office in my local village. Um, to send it to my publishers. (laughs) James,
1: lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much.
0: It's so nice to hear your voice, Chris.
1: All right, mate. Lots of love. (laughs) You take care. Ta-da. Wow. Another completely, it seems so at least, sorted human being how do they do it they keep on coming it's what how to wow is all about that was james blunt talking about his diary of a reluctant social media sensation aka how to be a complete and utter blunt if you like this episode please rate and review and subscribe 10 10 till we do it again bye